Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Today's show also brought to you by The Vault at Stock and Barrel in Egan, a collection of specialty and pre-owned firearms for collectors and enthusiasts. Learn more at StockandBarrel.com. Welcome, everybody, WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830, live and local on this Sunday, October 8th. We are the lead-in, you might say, to the pregame. Yes, the Twins kick off the first pitch at 7.10. In between at 6 p.m., we will have the pregame show for that game two down in Houston. See if the Twins can even the series. Fun week this this past week as we watch the Twins take care of business up here at Target Field. Hope we can bring it back and get home field advantage by knocking off the Astros uh, this evening. So I am here until 6 o'clock, then that Twins pregame, then the Twins 7, 7 o'clock first pitch at 7.10. Uh, we've got a, a good little show cooking. I normally don't have a guest uh, to kick things off, but I am going to do that today. We're going to talk uh, ducks here for a moment. Then at 5.15, my old friend Mark Weber is going to call in and talk about his trip across the pond to England where he uh, he uh, attended a class on on cutting up venison. I thought it was kind of interesting. He went all the way to England to do that. Uh, and he's an old baseball guy. I bet we'll, we'll talk twins for a moment, too. Uh, then we'll talk with Joe Albert. Joe is with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources uh, about the agency's canine program. Uh, those, those are the dogs that you might, uh, in, in law enforcement dogs you might encounter while you're afield uh, interacting with Minnesota conservation officers this fall. As promised, I want to check in with a gentleman from Maxed Out Guide Service. His name is Graham Gresseth. He's a duck hunting guide. And I tell you what, I've talked a lot about waterfall the past couple of weeks, how good it's been. And I thought, let's go directly to a gentleman that, that's out there every day uh, interacting with birds. Uh, Graham, are you with us? Yep. Hey, Graham, thanks a lot for jumping in the broadcast. How you doing? How was this weekend's? Uh, duck hunting, uh, goose hunting, given the fact we had some cooler conditions, we had some north winds blowing in, did it bring in some northern birds and and, uh, and blow out the teal? Um, I don't know if it blew out the teal. We definitely brought birds in. Uh, there's still a lot of wood ducks and teal around. Um, probably Wednesday was the, you know, we noticed a little bit at the beginning of the week, looked like we had some new birds, and then Wednesday and Thursday it was like, holy cow, there is waterfowl everywhere, and that was both here and out in western Minnesota. So, yeah, we definitely had um, a nice push with that front. Now, Graham, Tori McCormick wrote a piece last week uh, in Outdoor News. It was, in my opinion, the most stellar opener piece I have ever seen, and I've been an outdoors writer in Minnesota for going on more than 30 years. It just seemed like great reports all over the state. Is that pretty consistent with what you're seeing, this one of the better years uh, for, uh, for early season waterfall in Minnesota? Yeah, I think it's been good. It kind of, um, I mean, we had a very good weekend guiding. We had four groups going um, and uh, had, you know, four, usually if you have four groups of clients going, it's just how it works out. Somebody's going to have a rough day, but I think our low bird day for the, for our group was 25. So um, we'll take that, you know, all day, every day. And uh, so it, it was a, it was a very, very good opener, probably one of the better we've had in a few years. What's your take on the early teal season? Some folks concerned that it, it might push the birds out early and, and affect the regular waterfowl opener. That certainly didn't seem to be the case this year. We just wrapped up year three of the early teal season, technically still experimental, potentially could be permanent next year. Uh, what, what's your your take on early teal? Well, 
it, it's not an issue of pushing the birds out. I mean, if that was the case, no one would ever hunt Canada. Um, you know, uh, they they get going going hot and heavy in September, and last I checked, they're still beating them up pretty good up in September. So that 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 whole pushing birds out early that is just kind of a myth um, that that people like to talk about. But my, you know, I'm not a huge fan of it just because uh, if they if they continue to do it, I would love to see them go. Maybe I don't know if they can do it. Something they could do at the end of August. It's just really tough to have that early teal season and plus early goose opener at the mm-hmm. same time where. Mm-hmm. It, it's you know uh, you know every roost that's out there gets busted early and it just it makes things you know it makes things pretty tough so it would be great to see a time where there was a way that they could not have early teal and early goose overlap but mm. um you know for some people that like to shoot ducks it's a great opportunity for them um you know we we tend to focus on those early season uh, goose hunts a little bit more and it, it's not ideal uh for anybody that's really chasing geese but you just you do your best now, Graham, you said you this weekend you were seeing some "quote unquote" new birds move in. And what does that mean? Does that mean Gadwell? Gadwell? Does that mean maybe some teal from the Dakotas, or does that mean big old mallards? Uh, yeah, definitely a lot of mallards. Uh, we had a you know the feed that we hunted yesterday uh, Saturday morning. There was probably a thousand ducks feeding in that on Friday night in the bean field, um, and they're all mallards. Um, I shouldn't say they're all mallards. There's some wood ducks in there too, but um, yeah, probably more mallards in western minnesota right now for this time of year than we are than i have maybe ever seen there's there's a lot of mallards out there right now and they all pushed in this week we're definitely there's some ponds we've seen some widgeon on and some gadwall we shot a few pintail this weekend so that's you know that's a sign that things are on the move and then you wow. see little geese um you know we'll see out in lac parle we see those epp geese those sure. five to seven pound birds and then we see the lessers as well you'll you know you start to see some of those uh, you know, tiny two and three pound geese mixed in with the big giants as well. Nice to hear uh, a few pintails in the mix too. I, I always love uh, love seeing those birds in western Minnesota. Why has it been good this year in Minnesota? What what would you chalk it up to? I mean, overall continental duck populations are lower than they were five ten years ago, and yet it's it's such a great year this year is because you know the drought. Maybe uh, we had drought. It solidified some of these. Um, substrates and and then we got some vegetation popping and it's holding birds. I wrote about that in my column this week. I don't know. Do you buy that or is it? it it's just the way the flyaways working this year. What do you make? Well, of it? I just think it's you know the, the continental population may be down over the last ten years, but I think our numbers, I think the hatch numbers, I think they said we're up eighty percent this year, so that's a big jump. Um, and we've had a couple of uh, you know of rough hatches the last couple of years and and. Uh, it's been dry, so that just makes things tougher. And then, you know, if you bump that, that hatch, uh, you know, those numbers up 80%, that's a big spike in birds. And, and maybe still be down overall, but um, that's just, you know, more birds are just, you know, it's just that's going to lead to good things. Yeah, that hatch that you're referring to, I think, was eastern Dakotas, and you're probably seeing a lot of those birds uh, where you are especially. Yeah. I, I wanted to, uh, one of the reasons I want to have you on was talk about white front geese. I think white fronts are, you know, one of the best eating geese. We've had some... Folks uh, say that they're seeing more white fronts, also called speckled bellies, in western Minnesota. You bumping into very many of those? Yeah, we heard some this weekend. Didn't get into any. Um, we've definitely seen more out there over the last, uh, I'd say the last five years. Probably three years ago was the most we had ever seen. Um, three or four years ago, I forget which year it was. That year that we had all that big snowstorm and like mm-hmm. the third week in October. Um, 
So that year we had just a, you know, we had fields that were holding five, 600. We thought they were big geese at first, and then we hit the binoculars and they were all specs. So, um, yeah, and we heard a few this weekend, and this is always about the time they start showing up. Um, You'll hear them migrating on on calm, clear days. This time of year you'll hear them a lot, um, you know, just up in the heavens migrating. Uh Uh-huh. Well, definitely a little bonus uh, when you when you encounter those because we never used to used to see those. I think that's that's pretty exciting. We got a few white fronts moving through western Minnesota. It, I, you, you get very many in the year. I, they are delicious, right? They got a reputation as the best eating of all the geese. Yeah, I I don't I think they all I think I've I've had them all. I've had you know really good goose, really bad goose, really good snow geese, really uh-huh. bad snow geese, and uh-huh. and I I think they all. You know, it's just like anything. It's all they're prepared. I think, right. uh, I you know, I think they're good. I don't, I don't know if they're anything exceptional <laughs> over the other ones, but, um, but yeah, no, it's fun. I mean, it, it's not, it's not a bird that you would go out there yet to to count on. Like mm. you wouldn't go out there to target. But chances are, right now, if you are out in that area and you are hunting a Canada goose feed, um, you know, if you're going to hunt for two, three days in a row, chances are you're going to have a flock with some specks in it come in at some point. Yeah, way cool. Graham, I'm out of time. I really appreciate you calling in with with a quick update. Maybe we'll check in with you again later uh, during the season. Uh, see how you know overall how you would uh, judge this year's waterfall hunting. See if it gets better or worse, and, and give us some tips on on some late season hunting. Your uh, website maxedoutguides.com, correct? If folks want to check in and, and get some direct reports and maybe uh, connect with you on a, on a hunt. Yep. Yeah. They hop on the site. They can join our email list. I try and put out an email update about uh, once a week or once every other week, just what we're seeing in the field, what openings we have. Um, so yeah, you know, we'd love to get people out. We've been doing it for 18 years now. We'd love to get them out. Graham, thanks a lot. Maxed out guide service. Have a great, uh, a great week ahead. A great hunt. Thank you, sir. All right. That was our friend Graham Gresseth, Maxed out guide service, maxedoutguides.com. Let's get in a break. We will transition from waterfowl to uh, cutting up deer, talking venison when we return. This is WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk, 830, Sunday, October 8th. We are live and local. I am Rob Dreesline, managing editor, publisher of the Outdoor News Publications. Enjoying these cooler temperatures this weekend. I'm not someone who likes it when the heat goes too deep into fall, so I'm very excited that we're getting some normal temperatures, uh, pushing some of those ducks south like we talked about in the last segment, uh, doing some, eh, you know, I, I harvest a lot of wild rice every year, and the problem is it seems like there's about five months a year where I, I'm just not in the mood to eat wild rice because I kind of associate it with with cooler temperatures, with winter, uh, those kind of comfort foods. And I had actually had a story in this week's Outdoor News. We had five or six different recipes uh, involving wild rice. I got 65 pounds of fresh wild rice that I brought home this past week uh, that got processed from the harvesting that I did a month or so ago. I think I told listeners about that a little bit. So I'm looking for lots of wild game recipes to mix in with all that wild rice. On the topic of outdoor cooking and processing wild game, uh, my next guest is going to jump in now. He's an old friend named Mark Weber. Uh, we'll check in. And Mark, are you with me, my friend? Yeah, hi Rob. Mark, good to good to hear from you. Uh, I I thought, gosh, this makes a pretty cool idea for a segment to talk to Mark, uh, who recently retired from the newspaper business. You, uh, Mark, and I are both old ink stained wretches, as as we say. And Mark, your wife is is just awesome, Cynthia. Uh, she decided to get you a really cool retirement trip. Uh, and it involved wild game. There's all these classes out there on cutting up deer and wild game cooking, but yours took you to a, a pretty 
pretty wild destination. Uh, tell, tell, us, uh, tell us where you went. Yeah, Rob, uh, Cynthia gave me a wonderful surprise when she uh, gave me a, a class, uh, a deer butchering and cooking class, but it happened to be in England. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I did it this spring, and I flew over there, spent a few days in London, and the class is actually put on by a gentleman named Nick Weston, who has a, a cookbook called Hunter, Gather, Cook. And he is an interesting uh, chap, as they say over there, where he was a chef uh, in London. He decided to uh, get out of the chef business and live off the land in a tree house in southern England and write a cookbook on hunting, fishing, and foraging. And then that uh, he parlayed that into a cooking class uh, or school uh, when he bought a 200-year-old barn <laughs> in a be- really beautiful part of, of England. And uh, lo and behold, I was there a, month, uh, a few months ago. You know, I, what struck me as interesting about this is we talk a lot about the, quote-unquote, the locavore movement here, right? And, and how it seems like the millennials, especially now the Gen Zers, are into, you know, organic food and processing their own food. And I, I think of that as being kind of a uniquely American phenomenon because we're, you know, we've got our public lands. We've got a big-time hunting culture here that's, that's part of the, you know, throughout all the different strata of, of classes in the, in the United States. Everybody participates in this. And I don't necessarily think that way about England, that everyone's involved in hunting over there like we are here in the States. And yet here's this class, a deer in a day, I believe was the exact name of it, that struck me as very similar to some of these same sort of discussions we're having here. Were my perceptions incorrect? It sounds like they were. It sounds like this is a bigger deal across the pond than maybe I would have suspected. Well, uh, well, hunting is quite different over there, as I learned. Um, first of all, our deer, there's, there's six different types. Uh, everybody is familiar with the, the red deer, the big stags up in Scotland that you see in movies. But in southern England, it's uh, fallow and roe deer are the two main types there. And uh, it's, it's quite the process to hunt. Uh, out of the roughly 15 people in the class, uh, we were butchering four roe deer in that deer for the day class, and uh, over half of them weren't weren't even hunters. And the problem they were explaining to me is that, like you said, Rob, uh, all of the land is private over there. The other problem uh, uh, they have is the firearm regulations are quite different and strict. Sure. And uh, people I was talking to said. Uh, it's very difficult to bring a gun over if you wanted to do any hunting over there. So in the area I was in, they do, uh, do, uh, they don't call it hunting. They call it stalking deer. Hunting's, hunting's, uh, what they call for foxes and, and hounds. Is okay. What they do. okay. So, uh, but it was, uh, uh, like you said, a, a quite different. They were very curious because I was the only American in the class. Uh, how Minnesota hunting was. And I was showing him pictures of the whitetails that we get up in by our cabin by Brainerd. And they're amazed at the size and uh, the antlers. And uh, they're amazed at the story of public land and how easy and accessible it is for us to hunt here. Right, right. And that's that's why I harp on public land so much in, in my writing and on this show. That's That's... <laughs> 
that's not an accident that we have great hunting here, that we have access to for, for people of all races, creeds, colors, and, and socioeconomic uh, strata. You get to go out in this country and participate in these sports relatively affordably because of all this public land access we've got here. And that's something that, that doesn't exist uh, you know, across most of Europe. Yeah, you, you talked about the different type of deer. I think the only native deer over there is the red deer, which really is basically the same thing as, as our elk. I mean, they look almost identical to North American elk. These fallow deer and roe deer, they're, they're all fenced in, right? On, on big on big ranches or what would they call them estates over there I suppose estates yeah the, the what they did over the years these six main types were brought in and brought in by the rich estate owners and then obviously they escape and become wild and and uh, there are I wouldn't call it overrun with deer but uh, the deer are readily available and they actually sell them. Uh, the estates will sell them. You can literally buy a deer for a hundred dollars and bring it home and uh, butcher. That's why half the people in the class weren't hunters because those deer are available to them to cook and and, uh, and butcher. I'm curious about the actually the actual butchering of portion of the class. Uh, how do I put this? Sometimes in in Europe and even in the UK, uh, they use maybe parts of the deer or the animal that that we wouldn't hear. Or did or did you find that it was the butchering was was very similar and and uh, you know everybody used the same same parts of the, of the animal that we do here in the states. It's it was very similar. The anatomy of these deer are, are uh, basically all the same, sure. and the the butchering part of it. The class was an all day class where we would. Uh, divide up into four teams. We each had our own deer. We'd butcher it. And then uh, Nick, the owner, brought in some London chefs, and they'd actually cook for us as we uh, butchered it. So we were eating tacos and hot pot and tartare and pastries. <laughs> and and uh, it, it was quite the event. The, the, uh, you know, he, he said he was trying to give us a Ph.D. in beer processing or uh-huh. venison uh-huh. processing. And uh, and some of the things they do, you, you know, you're right. They're they're at least these chefs are very much into the the finer full, uh, cuts, the bullets, the pavés, the salmon fillets, Interesting. Uh, and and really showing us how to you know uh, uh, process those out, out of the out of the out of the, uh, the 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 roast that we were we were getting. So uh, it was a fascinating, uh, you know, I think. Much probably like most deer hunters, uh, at our deer camp, we we process our deer, and you know it's hanging on a tree, and <laughs> and it's usually twenty twenty below, and you're trying right. to get it as quick as possible, and it, it just taught me that you know take your time. Okay. There's there's more to it than than you realize, and and a lot of hand processing. They really were into you know don't always use your knife, use your hands to feel around and and find those seams. Wow. So is there yeah, it was really, really, really good. And how do roe deer and fallow deer taste compared to a good old-fashioned whitetail? Pretty similar? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hard to tell a difference. <laughs> okay, okay, good. I, I, don't, I don't want to yeah, say venison's venison, but it was uh, it was delicious the way they, 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 uh, they, they cooked it. The name of the course was Deer in a Day. It was hosted by a gentleman named Nick Weston, author of Hunt, Gather, Cook, uh, I presume he does these all the time. If anyone wanted to take a class, and uh, and you know, kind of, it's kind of an excuse to go to England, right, <laughs> and, and, and take a yeah. take a class over there because you can find similar classes here, but uh, still sounded pretty fascinating, Mark. 
Yeah, no, it was. And, and uh, the class are readily available. They're not very expensive. The expense is getting over there, obviously. Sure. But uh, they book up quick, and he does have other classes on very seasonal on foraging and pheasants and rabbits and mushrooms and all sorts of other options. Mark, real quick, I'm out of time, but uh, you're an old baseball guy, Minnesota Golden Gopher catcher. Uh, you're a, a big-time Twins fan. You and I have gone to a lot of Twins games today. Do you, you like the Twins' chances to even the series? We've got, what, Pablo Lopez up against uh, Valdez today, right? I'm, I'm calling the next two hours, Rob, right now. <laughs> awesome. There you have it. I like the optimism. Mark, yeah. thanks a lot for coming in. That was a fun segment. It was good to catch up with you, and uh, let's, let's get together someday and, uh, and share some venison recipes. There you go. All right. See you, Mark. Mark Weber, a longtime friend of mine who's worked in the newspaper industry and uh, avid hunter and uh, and base- baseball player, too. Uh, so we appreciate him checking in. Let's get in a break. We will check in with my friend, another old friend, Joe Albert. We'll talk to him a little bit about the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources canine program when we return. This is WCCO Outdoors. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, October 8th, 2023. I am Rob Dreesline, and we are leading into Game 2 of the ALDS, our Twins versus the Houston Astros. Uh, twins are down in Houston, where it's significantly warmer than the normal temperatures we finally have gotten here in Minnesota. But for those who love the great outdoors, these are prime temperatures for hunting, late-season fishing, and uh, just getting out hiking, enjoying what many of us consider the finest season here in Minnesota. Hey, I want to check in now with an old friend. Old co-worker, Joe Albert, now the Enforcement Division Communications Coordinator for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Joe, a busy man with kids and an active career. How are you doing, old friend? I'm doing really well. How are you? Good, yeah. I'm, I'm keeping busy myself, staying out of trouble. No time for trouble. Well, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, you uh, you had a little media soiree earlier this week. Uh, young Brian Mosey from Outdoor News got up there and visited with you. The uh, DNR Enforcement Division kind of displayed some of the uh, the techniques, training techniques for their canine units. It's, that's always a fun topic. Everybody likes dogs, don't they? Everybody loves dogs. And we've got we've got five of them who are really really fun to watch and very lovable, if I do say so myself. So the five canine units, they're all German shepherds, correct? Well, we've got one black lab, one oh. black lab mix, and then three that are kind of the German shepherd, Belgian Malinois. I'll be darned. I did not realize that. I thought they were all shepherds. Okay. So I've I've seen some of the shepherds around, and I've seen them work before. One of your DNR officers had one at the Northwest Sports Show uh, yep. probably every year. My daughter is just loves dogs, and uh, you know, I'm, I always tell her to be careful about dogs. But she really enjoyed meeting, I forget which one it was, Joe, at, at the Northwest Sports Show. And that dog was just Super well behaved. I, I guess that's part of the training, right? These dogs are out interacting with the public all the time. They're not, <laughs> they're not aggressive attack dogs, right? No, they're generally very good. I mean, we have three of them are trained, you know, to the officer protection stuff, but they're very good dogs. They, you know, they live with families and that sort of thing. So they're they're very good natured. So yeah, we've got the the actually the two labs are our newest ones, and they just came through the the St. Paul Police Canine Academy this year or so. They're just going into their first fall hunting season now. What are the names of those two labs? 
That's Bolton Jet. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, young Brian Mosey's story uh, mentioned their names uh, repeatedly. Uh, what's interesting is I think a lot of folks associate law enforcement dogs with tracking suspects. But you've got these dogs trained to do a lot of different things, uh, tracking potentially dead or downed wild game. And what, what's really interesting is like zebra mussels, right? Aquatic invasive species. Yeah. So three of them are trained for the, the zebra mussels. Um, and it's amazing to watch them work around a boat. You know, if there's a zebra mussel on there, they find it in very short order. And then, you know, they're all trained for the game detection. So, you know, if somebody's walking on the trail and sees a CO and, you know, tosses a grouse in the woods, they can go find that. Firearms detection, which is something they use a lot working with other agencies, you know, especially outstate where these, you know, Sheriff's offices, police departments don't have that kind of capability. You know, they can sniff out a gun very quickly. They find lost people. And then this time of year, one of the big things is shell casings. You know, when people shooting off the road or, you know, potentially making an illegal shot onto private land, something like that, they can find the shell casings. Now, I think a lot of folks listening might be amazed by some of what you just said, and including myself. Uh, the the shell casing, uh, the shell casing seems like that maybe makes a little more sense for a dog to find. I mean, gunpowder uh, in, a, in a, sp a recently spent shell is a pretty strong odor. But to to find a, a firearm, I mean, what is it? Is it the oil? You know, guns usually have a lot of oil on them. Is that how they're able to, to scent out a gun? I mean, a gun's made of steel. It's amazing that they can they can sniff that out. That's probably part of it. And I don't know all the nuances, but apparently guns are one of the easiest things for them to find <laughs> in the smell. I mean, this, the, you know, this training you were talking about that Brian Mosey was at earlier this week, they, there was a firearm on the side of the trail and the dog from a quarter mile away basically walked right to it or ran right to it. That was the easy one to find. And then there was a grouse across the trail in some cattails, and that was the harder one to find. Joe, how long has the canine program been around with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, and, and is the plan to keep it going? Yeah, so we started it sometime in the mid like 1990s, and it kind of we had one or two dogs for a while. Now we've kind of settled into about five or six dogs, and we have five right now. Part of it was because zebra mussels and you know detecting those. That's really you know we've got three of the five that are trained to do that. And so yeah, I mean, and the dogs are they're so effective at kind of being a you call them a force multiplier, but a human looking for a shotgun shell in a mile-long stretch of road that takes a lot of time if you ever find it, whereas the dogs can find it really quickly. And so it's a it's a program that makes, you know, enforcement officers more effective. And, yeah, I think, you know, it's something that will probably, it has been growing, and I do anticipate it will continue to grow. I love that term, force multiplier. Hey, you look at a dog's head, it's three-quarters nose, right? They've got skills that we simply do not have. Mm -hmm. And if we can employ those, then by all means. And, and, I got to think, yeah, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of effort that goes into one of these uh, canines, but it's a heck of a lot less than a human officer, correct? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, they <laughs> can hope. find things in minutes that, you know, it would take a human hours or they would never find it. And, you know, another thing, too, is they are trained. You know, they can locate lost hunters and lost people, and we've done that before. And so, you know, whether you spend, you know, if you spend 5000 or $10,000 on a dog, bringing a lost person back to their family is, you know, 
I mean, that makes it all worth it, even if it's just one person. Absolutely. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Rob Jerislein with you here. We're chatting with Joe Albert. He's the communications coordinator from the DNR Enforcement Division. We're talking about the canine unit program. Tell us a little bit about how a dog gets into this program. Are there specific sources? Is there breeding, I presume, for dogs for this type of uh, work, for these type of duties? Yeah, so you see a lot of the dogs that we have, they come from Eastern Europe, and they're working dogs. You know, that's that's how they're bred. You know, they're born to be working dogs. And we get them, and, but, you know, at the time we get them, they're basically the canine unit coordinator, Phil Moe's, you know, calls them basically a Tasmanian devil on the end of a leash. They don't know how to sit. They don't know how to, you know, respond to any commands. Are they pups, Joe? Or are they, uh, how old are no, they? No, they're, they're a year or two old. Okay. But, you know, and it's amazing to watch after, you know, 16 weeks of training. You know, that's, and that's kind of the intensive training to start with. And there's obviously ongoing maintenance training that happens every day. But these dogs, they put my dog to shame, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, their handler says sit or drop or whatever it is that, that they say. And these dogs respond immediately. And it's a, what is it, a 16-week training program? Is that what uh, I think Brian's story said? And it's with a, a St. Paul? There's like a, a dog training academy over there? Yeah, so the St. Paul Police Department has a canine, basically they do a canine training. And so these dogs go there, well, the dogs and their handlers for 12 to 16 weeks and go through that. Uh, and then they're you know basically certified to work in the field. And then there's these ongoing trainings. So our canine unit gets together for two days every month and works together. And then they have to do individually at least 16 hours a month. But, you know, all of the handlers, I think, you know, they work every day with the dogs. Keep them sharp. So that's minimum 16 hours a month for the duration of their canine career. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think people will be glad to know that, that it's not like this training, you know, just stops after, uh, after Doggy Academy. No. And, you know, they've... Yeah, they, they and they always have to be doing something different too. Cause, you know, you can't condition the dogs to search for something for ten minutes because if they're out in the wild and searching, you know, ten minutes is up, and they're like, "Yeah, no, I'm not going to find it." So they've always got to be working them, and they do a really good job. It's it's truly amazing to watch. The working career of these dogs is what uh, seven, eight, nine years. How long does that go, Joe? And then what happens after uh, after they're done working? Yeah, it's you know seven, probably seven to ten years. And then once they're done working, they go and live with the handlers and their families, you know, cause that's, that's where they've spent their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they, they live with them and just, you know, kind of go off into retirement that way. If someone out there is listening, they're out hunting and fishing, they encounter a conservation officer with a canine unit. How should they behave? Should there be different expectations? Are they being investigated for something different than they perhaps normally would by a seal without a dog? I would certainly act the way you normally would. If you talk to the officers, people will generally act better. Yeah. <laughs> um, because a even if they're not doing something wrong, people are just they're drawn to dogs. Everybody mm-hmm. loves dogs. And the the canines are no different. So yeah, just act the way you always would. Most of these dogs, well, I would say all of them are very friendly and I wouldn't walk right up to them and, you know, start petting them and that sort of thing, but you can certainly do that if you ask. Mm-hmm. Like any dog. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had these dogs out at the state fair and, you know, one of the, I think, highlights for a lot of people is at the end of the presentation where they're able to, you know, get next to the dog and take pictures and pet it on the head and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Joe, uh, hey, it's a, it's a very interesting aspect of DNR enforcement. Like I say, my uh, interactivity with, with the units has been very positive over the years, and it'll be fun to, I guess, monitor this program going forward. Thanks a lot for spending a segment with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, like I say, uh, Brian Mosey wrote a story about it, and I suspect there's other media also reporting on this. Uh, have a great week ahead, Joe. Thanks. You too, Rob. It's our friend Joe Albert from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Enforcement Division talking about the agency's canine program. Let's get in a break. We'll have more of the broadcast after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline with you for our final segment of this broadcast on October 8th. Uh, Stick around when we wrap up. The Twins pregame will kick off, and then the uh, game, first pitch at 710. Go Twins. Hope they can even up the series against the Astros of Houston this evening. One of my earlier guests, Mark Weber, predicted they will win this game and the next game up here at Target Field. I hope uh, that he is correct. Uh, I I can't remember if I mentioned this last week or not, but I'll tell you what, NBA weekend is coming up October 19th to the 22nd. And there's a really cool thing that happens involving hunting that weekend. There is the statewide youth deer season that goes that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Again, the whole state, it's a cheap little uh, tag that kids can buy so they can go out deer hunting that weekend uh, with a firearm. This is not an archery hunt or a crossbow hunt, although if they want to use those implements, they can do that. It also coincides with the statewide uh, Pardon me, it is not statewide. The early antlerless season that occurs in 23 deer permit areas around Minnesota. If you look at the map, that's a lot of deer permit areas. It's not statewide, but it covers a pretty good swath of Minnesota. So, And, and what's the reason I've always loved it is a lot of those DPAs are down in southeastern Minnesota where I hunt. So it's something I took advantage of a lot uh, when my kids were younger. Uh, we'd go out. They'd, they'd buy that statewide uh, tag. They could hunt and take any deer. I would buy an antlerless tag, and I could go out with a fire hum, firearm. And so it was kind of like this bonus gun deer season. Uh, and if you're, you know, you're out there and you've ever thought about getting kids into deer hunting, it's a great way to affordably give it a shot. Uh, and so I just want to throw that out there one more time. It's, it's a pretty nifty little season, October 19th to the 22nd. It's kind of a bonus deer hunting season with a firearm. Uh, here in uh, in our fine state of Minnesota. Uh, check it out, uh, details at OutdoorNews.com, also at MNDNR.gov. They've had some press releases on it recently. <coughs> we, uh, we had a story in Outdoor News about a big sturgeon bust on the Mississippi River. Tim Spielman wrote the piece. The Minnesota DNR had a press release on this earlier this summer, and then uh, Tim went into more detail on it uh, in this most recent uh, piece. Uh, it was down in the Mississippi River, down on the uh, the probably like our Houston, Minnesota County border, uh, and then downriver from La Crosse on the Wisconsin side. And we had a bunch of folks from, it sounded like the Milwaukee area, uh, that were driving all the way across the state, and they were poaching sturgeon, shovel-nosed sturgeon, little smaller species. Normally when you see sturgeon stories, we talk about the lake sturgeon. Their populations are rebounding thanks to a lot of reintroduction efforts and really, really tight regulations around Lake Sturgeon, they get much bigger. You know, like on the Rainy River in the spring, you'll see these 100-pound Lake Sturgeon. Well, shovel nose, they're another sturgeon species. They're not as big, but both species, the roe, the eggs, are very valuable for caviar. And so we had a group of guys coming over, and they were poaching these little shovel nose sturgeon, 
and and then they were selling the roe as as caviar and there was a big sting that multiple state agencies implemented including our own Minnesota DNR to bust these guys and i'm so glad they did i mean this is this is a valuable resource and i i was talking to Spielman about it a little bit it's like man there must be some money in that caviar huh when when guys are willing to load up and drive all the way across the state of Wisconsin to poach these things and you know Shovel nose sturgeon, probably a little faster growing species to to reach maturity than the lake sturgeon, but nonetheless, it's still a relatively slow growing species. I, I grew up on the river. I'm an old river rat. We we bump into a shovel nose sturgeon once in a while, but not very often. Which tells me uh, that uh, you, know, you know a group of poachers can probably wipe out a small population of these these sturgeon on you know one of those pools of the Mississippi fairly quickly. And, you know, they wipe those out, and then they say, hey, let's go somewhere else and target Lake Sturgeon or whatever. So it's good that, you know, we've got law enforcement folks out there taking care of business and uh, and busting these people. I appreciate all the work that our conservation officers from Minnesota and Wisconsin and, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service do to protect our natural resources. With that, folks, I'm out of time. I sure appreciate everybody tuning in for the past hour. It was a lot of fun being the lead-in for the pregame. For your Minnesota Twins, that pregame's going to kick off here in just a couple minutes and then first pitch for the Twins at 7-10. With that, everybody have a great week out of doors. I am Rob Jerisline signing off for another edition of WCCO Outdoors.